we'll do a little bit of framing of this talk, and I'm going to kind of give the story about how it was a negative trial, and now it's a positive trial, and that's interesting. Uh, Joel, Joel, it wasn't a negative trial. It was stopped for safety reasons. Stopped early for safety Stopped, reasons. Stopped early, yeah. Okay, okay. Those are great corrections to make, and just call me out, and that's that's kind of our, our brand. I am here to make mistakes for your amusement. Okay, so John, that you are looks like you're gonna be perfect for this podcast. Okay, Joel is the punching boy, so everyone feels smarter. Listen, <laughs> everybody has a role. Everybody has a role. Welcome to Freely Filtered, the irregularly irregular podcast that summarizes and discusses recent FJC journal clubs. FJC is a Twitter nephrology journal club where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms out of podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Talk. Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Jordy. Hey, I'm Jordy Cohen. I'm a nephrologist and epidemiologist at the University of Pennsylvania. I tweeted at Jordy underscore BC. Excellent. Welcome back, Jordy. Josh. Hi there, Josh Waitsman. I'm a nephrologist and scientist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. I tweeted Jay Waits. Swap. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist epidemiologist at the University of Ottawa. I tweet at H Swapnil. And in terms of disclosures, I am not a GN expert at all. Okay, we'll remember Me neither. That. And we have... <laughs> me neither. Me neither, but my father-in-law has IGA nephropathy and asked me to mention on this podcast that he had to deal with, like, decades of being told that there was nothing that could be done for him. So, just uh, throwing oh. that in there. That's my only nice. disclosure. Nice. And uh, tonight we have a special guest. We have Sean Barber, who has been part of the testing group since the very beginning. Sean, want to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, I'm Sean Barber, I'm a nephrologist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, in Canada. I tweet at Sean J. Barber. And, and Sean, t- tell us, how, how did you get involved with the testing trial? I did my GN uh, research and clinical epidemiology training in Toronto. And uh, while I was while I was a fellow there, actually one of the World Congress meetings was in Vancouver, which is where I was originally from. And the original meeting of the steering committee for the testing trial occurred at the World Congress, or one of the first meetings occurred at the World Congress. And I sort of just forced my way into the meeting uh, as the fellow from Toronto, and since then have been part of the steering committee and set up a recruiting center in Vancouver at UBC when I started with an academic position here in 2012-2013. Well, uh, Toronto's got a storied history with GN, so they already had it. They were already a site. Is that right? Or they were already going to be part of the site? Uh, Canada hadn't yet actually uh, been involved uh, in the testing trial. So we were, it was more at the inception phase at that point. The trial, I, I mean, as you can imagine, uh, studying steroids, you know, in IG nephropathy, there was no real funding for the study. So each country had to go secure funding from their own uh, peer reviewed process. And for us, that was CHR. So we hadn't even submitted to CIHR at that time. And so actually the testing trial submission to CIHR was the first grant I ever wrote for CIHR. And I wrote it as a, uh, as a research fellow in Toronto. And um, that was before I even had an academic appointment. So Michelle Adunowicz was put on the grant as well as an investigator. And so 
uh, we had to get funding through CHR before we could even start recruitment in Canada because there were no dollars uh, attached to it. So each country had to go find their own money. Do you mind me asking what CHR stands for? CIHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. So that was the, the Canadian uh, Institute of Health it's like, Research. Like okay. NIH. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be like the NIH, NIH but yeah. with loonies. <laughs> yeah, so valued at thirty percent less. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Sean, we have a lot of fellows and other trainees who listen to the podcast. Before all of them break down doors to enter every steering committee meeting for every trial <laughs> that ever happens after this, um, how would you advise fellows to get involved in this early stage of trial design? Or did you kind of pick this one off in advance and know this was happening? And, and what was your in here? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm not a clinical trialist. So uh, I, I do most of my research on clinical outcomes or prediction modeling analysis. So my involvement was mostly just out of the fact that my master's degree and uh, thesis study was in IG nephropathy. And so I was looking to set up a GN center in BC. And so the plan had been that BC would then become a recruiting center in Canada for, for patients uh, with IG nephropathy for the testing trial. And there, there, at the time, there wasn't the same degree of cohesive network we had for different centers that could recruit GN patients. Since then, it's improved quite dramatically. And the testing trial was actually a great example of pulling Canadian centers together to work collaboratively on recruiting patients into a relatively kind of poorly to modestly funded study through, uh, you know, peer-reviewed, publicly available uh, grant funding dollars. So it actually helped coalesce some of the network uh, across the country. And so I got into the, the steering committee just by virtue of being a Canadian interested in IG nephropathy, who was actually just willing to do the work necessary to get the funding. Get the and funding. Get yeah. the, that was a big part of it, is, is we could not have proceeded at all without securing funding through through CIHR. Help us out. How many Canadians ended up getting enrolled? How many are in this this trial, this 500, what, 500 patients or so, right? Is that our total end? How, how many of them are Canadian? Oh, I can't remember the exact number. I think it's somewhere around 30 or so. I, I don't 30. I don't remember exactly. Okay. okay. And uh, Toronto and Vancouver were actually the two biggest recruiting centers in the in the country. So Josh, you're smiling. And and not that anyone's going to call you on this, but how much did the Canadian taxpayers pay for these 30 Canadians to be enrolled <laughs> in this trial? Yes. Uh, well, that's publicly available. You can go <laughs> find out the uh, you can go we'll find that out on CITR. It's around nine hundred thousand dollars. Oh, nine hundred thousand yeah. dollars. I think it's bargain. actually it's very valuable information to a lot of people. I think we're going to get there, but I, I think that's a reasonable investment. I just thought it was interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's a reasonable investment. Excellent. Yeah, and there was a great legacy effect, as I said, it pulled together centers for GN study recruitment that have now actually worked for those to recruit patients into the CITR spore. Uh, GN Biobank nationally, so there's been a knock-on effect that's been quite beneficial. And I want to, I want to absolutely advise. I think that kind of moxie about not for, forcing your way into into meetings. I think we should promote that from among fellows. I think more chaos at these meetings, more young people getting in. I think is important. I think that's how these uh, oh, things yeah. advance. I, I'm sure Vlado at the time was wondering who is this like guy that's just showing up, and and no one. I don't think really acknowledged it until they realized that that you know if you're willing to do the work uh, and write the grants and and put the protocols through REB, then you know you can you can uh, work your way in. Despite the fact that at the time I was at the table with people that had far more experience uh, than I did in glomerular disease. Mostly, oh, they were older though. 
I got to say, though, these older gray haired people love young people with energy because most of them have already been through this like 10 times, are exhausted, don't want to be the ones to do the legwork. I totally agree with everything Sean is saying and especially want to drive home the point that you made about getting a clinical expertise. Because if you are the person that is known as like a key player in a clinical area of expertise, you're going to get approached by people to show up and have opinions. And then at that point, that's how you can also get involved in trials. So you should definitely get like the methods back and learn how to do the things right. But getting a clinical area of focus and not being like extremely diffuse and having something that people know you as, that goes so far. And and don't be intimidated by the fact that everybody else has a lot more experience. Like it's okay not to be the most experienced person in the room. They're there for a reason. You're there for a reason. Yeah, just don't have Dunning-Kruger about it either. It's a great balance. Like you're there to learn, but you're also there to sort of like become a future voice. I learned a ton by being part of the steering committee, especially with a trial like this that had a lot of ups and downs, you know, over the over the years. Look like you're supposed to be there. The doors are rarely actually locked. I was so excited to talk about this. I did forget to frame this. And so we're talking about the testing uh, trial. This is the effect of oral methylprednisolone on the decline in kidney function or kidney failure in patients with IgA nephropathy. And this is a study that has a long and hoary history in that in uh, 2017, I think, that was the initial publication where this study was stopped early due to increased uh, adverse events in the treatment arm. They were given a 0.6 to 0.8 mg per kg of methylprednisolone, and they had, they had some deaths, right? They had a couple of deaths due to infection that were unbalanced. There was significantly more infections in the treatment group. A couple, a couple of those infections resulted in deaths. And at an interim analysis, they decided to close the trial or at least halt the trial at that time. Uh, Sean, uh, I bet that was a pretty dramatic moment. Do you remember that meeting? Oh, yes. 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 Walk us through what, was that, what, act, what that looked like from your side. Well, I mean, let's put some historical context, you know, to this. The the previous clinical trials studying steroids and nephropathy, mostly we're talking about the MANO trial and the LIV trial. The POSI trial was a long, long time ago. But the the equivalent of one milligram per kilogram per day of, of prednisone, which is what the methylprednisolone dose equivalent is that you just mentioned, uh, were studied in two, two studies. One was an Italian study and one was a Chinese study that were a decade or longer before the testing trial. And they didn't report... I would say as rigorously the adverse events as we would normally expect in clinical trial design at this at this point. Now, I don't think anybody who has any experience treating a GN patient with prednisone ever expected there not to be adverse events when you treat people with, with, with prednisone for any disease. But then came the STOP IGA trial, right? So the STOP IGA trial is a very hard trial to interpret. It's got a, low, a lot of pros and cons to it. But what they did do was very rigorously capture and report adverse events and serious adverse events. And uh, although there was actually no significant difference in the adverse events between the treatment and and, uh, control group in the STOP IG trial, it was certainly higher, much higher than might've been previously reported. And so so it was the result of the STOP IGA publication in 2015 that actually precipitated an unplanned data safety uh, monitoring board review of the data of, of the testing trial. This was not a planned interim review before Stop IGA came no, out? No, it was Stop IGA came out. The Data Safety Monitoring Board conducted a regular review, but focused their efforts on the serious adverse events. They requested more data on the serious adverse events because of the Stop IGA publication. 
And when they did that, there was actually no significant, if you like to use the term in a p-value sense of the term, but there was a substantial imbalance in adverse events, including some concerns around infection-related adverse events in the treatment arm. And as a result of that, the DSMB made a recommendation that something had to be done to mitigate this risk in, in the protocol. You know, there was some tense meetings, many meetings to discuss, you know, what, what to do. The first thing that happened is from a safety point of view is any patient on therapy at that time was asked to taper and stop therapy. So you'll notice that when you look at the flow diagram of the, of the recent testing trial, about half of the people that discontinued treatment, it was because the DS, it was based on the recommendation of the DSMB to stop therapy. So then we had to decide what to do moving forward. You know, what, what do we do with the trial? How do we mitigate risks of infections? So before you talk about what went on going on there, there was a publication at that time. Well, the, the publication technically happened about a year and a half later. It took time right. to get, generate the publication. The decisions were made, you know, decisions in real made. time. You're going you're to take everybody off of steroids. We're unblinding patients, right? Everybody was tapered off. Everybody was tapered off. Their, whatever their investigational product was, everybody gets tapered off of it. At that point, all those patients are kind of, they're essentially done. And where does that trial get ultimately get published? That that at least that not that trial that interim report. That interim analysis was published in JAMA in 2017. That's JAMA 2017. Yeah. And just to remind people, in 2015 we had the stop IGA, which showed no improvement with steroids. So you say it's difficult to interpret, and we'll probably come back to it eventually. And so you kind of had two consecutive, well done, randomized controlled trials that were not very positive for steroids. It would kind of I remember talking about it, saying, "Hey, we're done with steroids." Uh, for IGA, and I and I know that I hadn't I didn't put any more IGA patients on steroids after that publication in JAMA. I think if you interpreted stop IGA that way, that would be a more simplistic, perhaps not as deep dive of stop IGA as perhaps could be ascertained from that trial. You would, you would not be the first person that called me, called me simplistic. I, I concede guilty <laughs> the of that. The interim analysis did show a very positive treatment effect in favor of steroids in our our testing data. However. Because it was an unplanned interim analysis, it was not based on a very large number of outcome events. So you could you could imagine that the certainty around that was, although it was statistically significant, a couple of events either way could change the magnitude. But the hazard ratio was something around 0.39. It was less than 0.4. It was a very, very large effect, which in retrospect, now that we know the results of the testing trial, probably was relatively accurate. But at the time, we didn't have confidence because of the small number of outcome events in that interim analysis. And as mentioned in the publication, as we've discussed here, the interim analysis occurred because of safety issues. And so, again, we have two studies now. We have the testing and we have the STOP IGA, which have demonstrated uh, safety concerns around full-dose corticosteroids. Now, STOP IGA wasn't only that. They also used cyclophosphamide and azathioprine, which no one really mentions, but, you know, around, let's say, aggressive immunosuppression in patients with IG nephropathy. And Sean, can I ask a question here? I, I feel like I'm gotten used to data safety monitoring boards coming in and either declaring a trial so efficacious we have to stop now because it's not fair to, for it to keep going, or there's such a difference in adverse events, we have to stop the trial, and there's no way for it to go forward. I'm not used to data safety monitoring boards coming in and saying, there's a difference in adverse effects here, we have to stop. But you could revise it and keep going in a different direction. Was was there a model that you guys were working off of to come up with this new lower dose, other changes that you made to the protocol? No, and keep in mind, when we got the letter from the DSMB, we didn't actually know what the efficacy results were. The DSMB had looked at it, but the steering committee didn't know. We knew that there was an imbalance in adverse events. And of course, 
given the letter from the DSMB, one could imagine which group the increased adverse events were in, but we didn't know the efficacy results. So, you know, we were making decisions about the trial without having a full data lock and looking looking at those, those efficacy results. So the DSMB had basically made recommendations that we needed to mitigate this risk, but had said, I can't remember the wording they used exactly, but they did not recommend stopping the trial because there was a signal of efficacy. So that we had mm. the balance. We had to do something to balance the the risks in the trial. And so I think we made, you know, some some challenging decisions based on meta-analyses at the time uh, that could have very well have been wrong, but in retrospect, were right, but perhaps with a little bit of luck involved. And if folks are interested, that letter from the DSMB is actually a supplementary figure from the original publication in 2017. It's it's cool to see one of these in real life because I, I'm not a clinical trialist. I never see stuff like this. Okay, Sean. So can anybody else think of another publication like this where it was a stop, revise, and then recontinue? Swap's shaking his head. To me, it stands alone. This is a kind of a, a kind of crazy story. It's a little bit unique, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. And it makes it hard to ch- to interpret uh, the results of the trial. Um, I mean, it had to be done. It, there was no option, uh, but it, it does add some complexity to interpreting the results for sure. Let's get to methods. Right. So uh, we, we covered some of the methods already, but, you know, just a high level overview is this is a randomized uh, double blind. Uh, so, you know, placebo versus steroids blinded placebo controlled multicenter clinical trial done across a few countries. Let's talk about different aspects here. So first is the population. So you need IGA is a is a heterogeneous entity. Uh, you know, one of the papers we discussed, in fact, a few years ago on FJC was Sean Barber's uh, risk prediction model, uh, which was in JAMA Internal Medicine a couple of years ago. And, and the, the whole problem is that, you know, IgA can be anywhere as just microscopic hematuria uh, and nothing else. Uh, and they have, you know, most very benign cores or you can have crescentic IgA and everything in between. You have to choose patients who are at high risk of progression, but who don't have a slam dunk indication for immunosuppression already. They chose patients who had a a biopsy-proven diagnosis of uh, primary IgA nephropathy, uh, no secondary IgA there, and a 24-hour urine protein of more than one gram a day. And in addition to that, they had to have a GFR between, initially it was 20 to 120 for the uh, earlier full dose cohort, and then that was revised to 30 to 120 uh, for GFR in the reduced dose uh, cohort. But the, the exclusion criteria are important. So if there was minimal change disease with IgA, that does happen sometimes. Uh, in those that case, you give them steroids, right? So it's not ethical to, uh, there's no equipoise to enroll those kind of patients. If there were more than 50% crescents on biopsy, again, same thing. It's like a crescentic IgA, they need to have immunosuppression, so don't include them. If they had had, you know, something like acute infection or malignancy, they would be excluded. Uh, In the supplement, they also mentioned is that if the investigator thought that they deserve to be on immunosuppression, they were out. And uh, if they had had any systemic immunosuppression in the previous year, uh, they were excluded. And a bunch of other small, smaller, less uh, consequential uh, exclusion criteria. So apart from that, then the intervention itself, before it before you started steroids or, uh, or, or placebo, there was a run in phase for about three months, 12 weeks. Uh, the purpose of the run-in period here was to make sure that the background therapy was maximized, so which is basically RAS blockade, right? No fish oil or flozins in there. Um, so, so they had to have. Uh, but what do you mean there was no? What, what, what do you mean there was no fish oil? Was, isn't everybody on with IGA on fish oil? I, I know. I, I'm, just kidding. The, I, I don't just kidding. Fish oil. Yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was trying to get a reaction from someone. You have the reaction. It's never <laughs> no. I don't use fish oil, but the point was the fish oil could not be adjusted during the study. So if you're going to use fish oil, get it in in the running period. Is that the story? 
uh, I I don't think they mentioned that specifically, but I you know if they were on fish oil, I presume they stay on fish oil. But uh, Sean may know more about. Uh, I, I'm I'm energy, looking at the baseline you know, characteristics, and am I missing? I don't see a fish oil line. No, I'm not so sure we address fish oil. No, no one really uses fish oil. So. Yeah, patients love fish oil, though, right? I it was at one point on up to date, at least for membranous, I remember. <laughs> uh, but, okay, but okay, so yeah. no more, no, okay, fish oil. Okay. And, and the flows in data came like last year, right? So, so this is, you know, let's not go there. Uh, but the RAS blockade had to be maximized. And at the end of it, after maximizing RAS blockade, they still had to have more than one gram proteinuria. So, so it's not that, you know, the proteinuria went down because of their ACE inhibitor or ARB. So that's fine. They were randomized. The randomization was stratified on four variables, including the site, uh, which I, which we shall see is, see is important, you know, whether it was China or, or other countries. The uh, proteinuria, eGFR, and uh, the presence of endocapillary proliferation on the, on the biopsy. GFR, proteinuria, location, endocapillary proliferation, those are the four? Yeah, and, and that will come up in the subgroup analysis when Josh talks about it. Josh, you better talk about it. <laughs> uh, the, the intervention was, uh, again, it was methylprednisone versus uh, placebo. And in the full dose cohort, it was 0.6 to 0.8 milligram per kg per day for um, two months with a maximum of uh, 48 milligram per day and tapered down by 8 milligram per day over uh, six to eight months. So it's two months on the full dose and then they taper by eight milligrams per day per month? And then uh, in the reduced dose, then that was halved, right, to 0.4 milligram per kilogram per day for, again, the same kind of for two months, maximum of 32 milligrams, uh, tapered by four milligrams per day, not eight milligrams a day because you're dealing with half the dose uh, so that, you know, they are done with the steroids by six to nine months. Uh, the other interesting aspect was because the SAEs in the full dose cohort was mostly driven by infections. In addition to the low dose cohort, everyone also got an antibiotic. So in this case, they got trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for the first 12 weeks. Because as you know, the SAEs was mostly infections in the full dose cohort. So there were two things they did, right? It's not just the reduced dose cohort, but it's a reduced dose cohort with the addition of an antibiotic uh, to decrease the risk of infections. And we shall see how well that did. How did that go down? How's that discussion? Well, yeah, I can remember the meeting actually. It was at an ASN. So we're discussing ways in which we can mitigate risk and, and what what risk are we trying, trying to mitigate? And obviously the most serious one is infection. And so one way is to reduce the dose. The other uh, method was to add in prophylaxis with uh, antibiotic prophylaxis. So uh, we basically discussed both of these issues. There was a lot of discussion around the use of trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, mostly because if we mandate that use, are we exposing patients to risks of allergic reactions to the medications? You know, so so there was a lot of uh, dynamic discussion around that, but we settled on utilization of the drug, uh, especially at the higher doses. So, so at least for a short period of time, at the higher dose of corticosteroids. And, and since that time, you know, I, I work in uh, BC. Uh, BC Renal uh, administers health services in British Columbia. We've done a review of which indications might be justified uh, to require PCP prophylaxis and certainly higher dose steroids, you know, again, do come up. So, so I would recommend the use of uh, PCP prophylaxis in patients on high dose steroids, at least while their doses are above about 20 milligrams a day. In this protocol, though, everybody gets the drug all the way down to you're done with the study? Uh, the first 12 weeks. Just the first 12 weeks you're on that's, the PCP. I guess the that's PJP when they are on the higher dose, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. So then yeah. once you taper down significantly, we're going to let you go off. Yes. Right. And so again, like, uh, I hate to step on Josh's toes. How many cases of Stevens-Johnson syndrome were there? <laughs> Zero. Zero. Hey. Thank God. Thank God. 
Thank God. Okay. okay. But how many cases where people were freaking out about a change in creatinine and in hyperkalemia right? of all the and drugs. all of the things that right? we of all uh, the drugs you pick. Wrestle yeah, with. But the, yeah. the GFR was pretty good, right? 32. I think it would have been slightly harder to give everyone inhaled pentamidine. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, and it's helpful that they're on the, it be on the placebo and on the study drug, the change in creatinine should be neutralized should be the by same. the randomized yeah. nature. Yeah. 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 It will be even on both ends, but it's still going to happen. And but so it's that's going to happen. Okay. That's the challenge now. Okay, swap, roll. Yeah, so so outcomes, which is the interesting aspect. So we've already heard about how messy the whole thing began. Uh, so for the full dose cohort, at that time, the 40% GFR had not been accepted, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago when the trial was planned. So the outcome for the uh, initial uh, testing trial was a 50% decrease in GFR and ESKD and renal death and all that. Uh, and for that, they to have 90% power uh, and a 30% risk reduction, they required 1,500 patients. So that was the initial sample size for the for the full dose testing uh, trial. Uh, a, a few things happened, right? So A, they got a sense of what the efficacy was going to be, perhaps, uh, after it was stopped and, and some analysis was done. Uh, since then, a lot of, you know, the, the NKF uh, and, and FDA had that workshop where 40% GFR was accepted as a valid surrogate outcome. Uh, so, so then, you know, if you're doing 40% GFR uh, reduction, you're going to have more events uh, than compared to 50%. And the event rate they found was more like, you know, 12% and not 7%. So it was a higher event rate. So they revised it to 750 with the suspension of uh, testing and restarting. They realized, you know, 160 events would be enough. So 500 patients was what they ended up with. And if you read that, you know, it looks like, hey, what were these guys doing? Right, it goes from fifteen hundred to seven fifty to five hundred. But talking to Sean and you know hearing the background of what that happens, it's it's remarkable that this was done at all, right? And this this is a challenge uh, when it comes to interpretation. It's it's fine for us to sit outside and criticizing. Hey, you know the the sample size went from fifteen hundred to you know five hundred, and and the the uh, the outcome has changed. So if you look at it from a hard EBM point of view, and I know I'm making editorial comments and not just describing the the methods, but if you look at this from a hard EBM, you know, all these things would get dinged, right? You stopped the trial, you you restarted it, you looked at the data, you, you know, you decreased the sample size, you changed the outcome. All of that would get downgraded. But I think, you know, the investigators did the best they could. Uh, and I'm not saying that Jib Gashon is looking at me, uh, but uh, but honestly, they, they the, the fact that this could be completed at all is a remarkable achievement. It makes you sort of wish that it had been a Bayesian, like adaptive trial design from the start, because a priori, this all would have been acceptable and wouldn't have been dinged and wouldn't have been sort of frowned upon. Um, and I think that it says a lot about that, that being the reason why a lot of studies are pushing towards that type of adaptive design, but being declaring it at the beginning instead of partway through so they don't have to wrestle with this sort of issue. When did that like declare that you're going to have an adaptive clinical trial thing really start? I feel like this thing I've heard more about recently and not for long ago trials. Did, did these guys even have a shot at making an adaptive trial when they started it? I think no. it's really gotten big during COVID, especially like we saw this with the big UK trial designs um, where they were able to shift gears when you had to in a very quick um, way in a setting of a disease that was constantly changing and nobody knew what to expect from one month to the next that now people are gaining respect for because they saw how well it worked. Yes, I mean, people had been talking about it, like there was an NEGM editorial by Deepak Bat in I think 2017 or 2018. But again, we would look at it and we would be like, uh, it doesn't sound, you know, kosher. 
it sounds kind of uh, we don't know if it's good to look at trafe is the word you're looking for it sounds trafe yeah yeah it does and and but you know again with covid as as jody said they realized that this was so useful and again people are not trying to cheat here right they are trying to do the best in the setting of having imperfect information like look at this they expected an event rate of 7% it turns out the event rate is higher so why keep recruiting when you know you're going to be done uh, just because you said you're going to have 1500 and i find the adaptive design is more honest because in the real world things change over time mm-hmm. studies adapt as the world adapts and keep in mind i mean we are, our decisions around the original protocol started back in 2010 you know it was a long time ago and so we sort of had this model where you had a protocol and you had to try to stick with it and then stopping it and changing it was a big deal but when we did do that we had extra information as walk no mention right we had an estimated treatment effect uh that was looking like it might be higher than we originally thought we had event rates that looked like they might be more frequent than we originally thought and we had a change in the outcome based on the mkf uh, which reduced from 50% down to 40% the threshold of gfr all of this made it more feasible to recruit the target number of people which is actually quite fortunate because uh much like Joel mentioned you know with the publication of stop iga the enthusiasm to randomize patients to tr- steroids or not went down quite a bit right so i don't think it would have been possible to recruit 1500 patients in the time period post stop iga in that environment so you know we're quite lucky i don't think we're going to have another trial studying steroids and iga properly we're beyond that now so this is what we have and we kind of have to interpret it with the caveats that we've mentioned swap i don't think you've talked about statistics is there anything important there So the primary analysis was looking at the effect of treatment on the primary and secondary outcomes using a Cox model but they used the site as a random effect and they used the baseline proteinuria GFR and the you know kidney biopsy finding as stratification variables they also looked at one of the secondary outcomes was GFR slope models the the primary outcome itself of course was a composite of 40% GFR uh, kidney failure which is dialysis or kidney transplant or death due to kidney disease in the secondary outcomes it was you know these individual components as well as proteinuria reduction egfr slope and the adverse events we think of 40% it almost sounds randomly chosen but they did 30% reduction 40% reduction 50% reduction we're going to show that it works or let's see if it works at all these different re- reductions in pro- uh, gfr which i loved i kind of just like yeah that's a you know in addition to the continuous variable of rate i thought that was the appropriate way to go, to to look at that Sean any other thoughts on methods? No, I mean it was pretty standard clinical trial methods. The only the one thing I would I would I would pretty mention standard. is that Start a trial, stop a trial, resume uh, a trial. Man, yeah, what yeah. you always read about. <laughs> well, it, it, that raises the, the 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 point of how do you deal with the low dose versus high dose treatment effect? We had to generate a new uh, protocol. I wasn't, you know, we had a separate statistical team that generated the statistical analysis plan. the decision was made to do the primary analysis pooling the two treatment groups together and then to add it as an interaction term to see if there was a signal of difference treatment effect in the low dose versus the high dose because of course everyone recognized you might lower side effects by lowering the dose but are you going to sacrifice efficacy okay sorry one other thing i wanted to just j- jump on from the methods that i had noticed was just that for a study that ultimately ended up being smaller than expected they had a lot of strata um when you randomize in a big trial you want a lot of strata because you want there are certain important things that you want to make sure people are balanced across if all else fails but when it ends up being a smaller trial like this when you have that many strata it can it can create issues um it didn't seem to but interesting again like the whole adaptive factor you are designing an adaptive design in the future think hard about that that the sample size could change and that some of your decisions at the beginning could really impact the integrity of the trial later okay josh 
Tell us some results. Uh, happy to share some results. I am appreciating everyone chiming in as we go through. During enrollment, they screened 950 people for potential enrollment in the trial, um, but about only half of those, about 500, were able to enter the randomization phase. I of will the trial. tell you, I would totally characterize that differently. They screened 950, and 500 of them got enrolled in the trial. I think this is phenomenal. For when you think about how variable IGA is and how different mm-hmm. those patients can be, the fact that over half the patients actually got enrolled. I thought that was a huge success. I really, I liked that part of the, the study and I thought it added a lot of um, what I like to call generalizability. Well, well said uh, and well articulated. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a running joke that I forget who can't pronounce the word generalizability. That's me who can't pronounce it. There, well, it came off well. But I've, I've conquered it. I've been to many therapists and I've conquered that, that, <laughs> that division. We're all proud of you. Well, I mean, Josh, if you, if you look at stop, if you look at stop IGA, right, one third of patients fell out of stop IGA because their conservative mm-hmm. therapy, you know, resulted in proteinuria reduction. And that was majority Northern Europe, Germany, patients were probably already on ACE inhibitors before even entering the run-in period. Mm-hmm. A lot of these patients were not on ACE inhibitors at all. So, right. uh, so you know, these are people the, being optimized. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's so a lot of the reason the people, that, that 950 dropped out because they that's right. didn't get through the run-in period. Interesting. Yeah, the, the biggest reason is proteinuria goes down and then exactly. you, you don't meet the inclusion criteria. Yeah. So of the 450 who are excluded, 250, more than half, had proteinuria drop below a gram, either between referral and enrollment or on starting or up titrating an ACE inhibitor ARB. And that seems like a really good idea not to enroll those people in this trial. So again, seems totally appropriate in terms of trial design here. The 500 who are randomized half and half to methylpred versus placebo within the 257 who are randomized to methylprednisolone, 131 of those are randomized before the data safety monitoring board shuts the trial down in 2016. And then 117 are randomized after the trial restarts on the low-dose methylprednisolone plus PJP prophylaxis phase of the trial design. That, you know, it's funny. That's why I was so surprised when Sean said that this was in response to stop IJ. It just seems like, oh, it's the halfway point. Of course, this is when they did the uh, DSMB, right? But it was, uh, it's interesting. Well, there were scheduled DSMB meetings, obviously, to review the data, but this, the publication of Stop IGA really raised the um, interest in looking at adverse events specifically, right? And okay. so, uh, I mean, they weren't dealing with statistically different adverse events, mind you, right? They were looking at numerically different adverse events that in the context of Stop IGA raised concerns. Yep. Got it. Okay. Great. So, so of those 250 patients in each arm, most of them completed the six to nine months of the intervention. Um, about 30 in the intervention arm and about 20 in the placebo arm had to be discontinued from their intervention, mostly related to the data safety monitoring board's decision to stop the trial at the that halfway, what turned out to be a halfway point or due to a serious adverse event, probably mostly infection as we'll get to in a little bit. Did we blow by table one? Was there anything of, of note? I haven't even one? made it through the okay. consort diagram oh, yet, but we're going to get to consort table one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then all of those patients are included in the primary analysis after. No, that's fine. So in thinking about the table one that Joel is so eager to get to, uh, these two groups do seem very well balanced. On average, these are patients who are in their mid-30s, more men than women, about 60-40% split, and mostly of Chinese race or ethnicity, about 75%, either at a Chinese site or of Chinese heritage enrolled at a different site. And that actually was pretty heavily Chinese skewed 
in the pre-data safety monitoring board shutdown period, that was 95% plus percent, and then really closer to 50% in the post-data safety monitoring board period, that low-dose methylprednisolone group is is less heavily Chinese skewed. Keep in mind, Josh, the reason for that is that prior to the interim analysis, China and Australia were the only two countries that had funding and were recruiting. Mm, So Canada, Malaysia, India, we didn't we had funding that had been secured, but we hadn't activated any sites or recruited anybody until after the low dose protocol started. So that was purely a timing issue. There was nothing to do with, uh, you know, recruitment strategies in different centers or anything like that. It just happened to do with the timing. Gotcha. That's a really helpful insight because I that's not something I'd wrap my head around until I saw the difference between the 2017 publication and the new one. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think may enhance the generalizability of the trial as someone who does not take care of a 95% Chinese population. Sean, what's the consensus in the IGA community? It, do they think that there really is a difference with people of Chinese heritage and people of Northern European heritage in terms of the natural history of this disease? Is that a real thing or is that a not a thing? That could require an entire other podcast to discuss, to be honest with you. So, I mean, I I think there's two different issues at play here, right? One is prognosis. Uh, Is there a different outcome in different ethnic groups? And the second is, is there differential response to treatment that you would want to consider when you're evaluating outcome events in a clinical trial? So if I swap no reference, the prediction model that we published previously, we, we had to consider ethnicity because of the existing literature that suggested different out, different outcomes in different ethnic groups. And we did, and it proved to be a, a strong predictor of outcome that was, in, that, that was included in the, in, a, in the prediction model. However, we also generated a model without uh, ethnicity and considered other uh, variables instead, which had very similar prediction performance. So, you know, it still remains an unknown question whether it's truly something inherent with different ethnic groups that's associated with different outcomes or is it a center effect or a region effect or an environmental effect? It's not. Your position, though, is we don't know the answer to my question. We don't know the answer, and we certainly okay. do not know whether there's a differential response to treatment. Okay, we definitely do not know we that. We don't know that. And then the next question is, what does that experiment look like? How do you how do you answer that question? I don't even. Well, I think I mean it seems I, like it's it's epidemiologic, and then how do you separate that from center effect? And I mean, I, I think what we need to do is move beyond average treatment effects to predicting individual treatment effects from from trials, right? So especially if we're going to be dealing with a, a therapeutic option like steroids that has some toxicity to it, you want to really identify which patients are going to respond. So we need good secondary analyses of clinical trials to do that. Now, it would have been nice if testing had been the 1,500 patients and had included a larger number of non-ethnic Chinese patients in order to determine if, in the context of a randomized trial data set like testing, is ethnicity an important determinant of differential response to therapy? We haven't done that analysis yet, but it's going to require secondary analyses, not just of the testing trial, but of any other larger phase three study coming out, whether that's Nefregard or uh, looking at budesonide or whether it's any of the other new therapeutic options that are likely, many of which will move to phase three trial designs. Jordy? Yeah, this is a fascinating sort of counter case to what we're dealing with with a lot of um, U.S. studies with the problem of addressing race as a biological variable, because it's really not, right? And so this is a question of, is it genetics or is it some other exposure that we're seeing as sort of this difference in 
prognosis and difference in um, what the disease state is. And then after that, is there something that can is potentially an interaction with treatment effects? So it's probably just a good surrogate marker for something else, right? So like Chinese, even as a race is, or as an ethnicity, is probably still just a surrogate marker for, is this a dietary difference? Is this a, a cultural difference? Is this a genetic or heritable difference? Or is it some combination of some other factors that we need to be just measuring better? So I think rather not the, the question isn't just, can we like design these studies and make them large enough to ask it? It's how we're going to ask question better. And we really need to be thinking deeply about collecting the right variables and collecting the right information but I think to be able of, to answer that question right. But I think a lot of the Chinese people in this study are coming from Canada and are coming from Australia. Like it's not, they're not just Chinese nationals, right? Yeah. It's Chinese Arabs, yeah. right? The, yeah. The, the, so we there need was, to a, know there was a mixture. There was a mixture yeah. of both. And so you probably want a good admixture of people living yeah. in different environments. There's already been a GWAS study that's published that looks at the genetics of IG nephropathy. And certainly there is a genetic contribution and that, that risk increases as you move from West to East across Eurasia. Hmm. So hmm. Th there, there is an increased prevalence of higher risk genes in regions like China, of course, you know, there's multiple different sub-ethnicities within China, and there are going to be different distributions of genetic risk factors there. But keep in mind, that genetic risk accounts for a minority of the variability of IG nephropathy. Yeah. It, it accounts for seven or 8%. There's so many other factors that must be at play. I mean, when we did the prediction model, we had to, for face validity, we had to consider ethnicity. I don't personally think it's useful to have only a tool that includes ethnicity. That's why we had the tool that doesn't, because how do you even apply it to someone sitting in front of you who might be ethnically admixed with many different, uh, you know, historical backgrounds in their family or who is who is might be ethnically Chinese, but they're living in Canada. Is that actually represented by the patients in the cohort that were ethnically Chinese from China? You know, we don't know. So and when you had the two models, one with and one without, they don't materially they don't have a material difference. Yeah. That's interesting. It, it, okay. Except that the model without could be far more generalizable to people, irrespective of whether you don't something have to, you is don't subjective. Have, yeah. You don't have yeah. to pretend you know what it means to be ethnically Chinese for this study. Yeah. Okay. That's super interesting. Um, Jordy, was there anything else you want to say? I thought you got your No, that is so awesome. Okay. Okay. Sorry to, sorry to derail that, was, that, Josh. That was great. Um, I don't know that I have anything smart to add to that discussion. Uh, I think this is a group that's really well medically treated going into randomization to steroids versus no steroids. Their blood pressure is better controlled. Yeah, their blood pressures most, are amazing, right? Most nephrology clinic blood pressures in the 120, low 120s systolic. And this is mostly pre-sprint uh, blood pressure control goals, so really impressive. The GFRs and the amount of proteinuria that folks have are pretty well matched with an average GFR in the mid-50s. Average proteinuria of around two grams, so putting them into that higher risk of progression of IgA nephropathy category. Most folks had had a recent kidney biopsy within the last five yeah, or six months. I was surprised months. at how recent that was. Mm -hmm. And and I think this was a difference with the stop by GA trial, right? There was quite a long time before some of those biopsies. Is that right, Sean? Yeah, I think it's actually quite important to just sit back and look at table one and compare it to other studies to decide, you know, is what kind of patients are these? Because as Swampnell mentioned, IG nephropathy is a very heterogeneous disease, right? So, so these are patients, as you mentioned, they're in their 30s. They have a GFR that's in the mid-60s. They have proteinuria. The mean proteinuria across both groups was over two grams a day, right? So if you look at the MESH scores that were provided, go ahead and compare those to something like DAPA-CKD. Of course, you can't compare the MESH scores because DAPA never actually captured pathology, which is a major limitation of the study. But DAPA-CKD, for example, the subgroup analysis in IGA patients 
you're dealing with patients that were 10 years older that had 20 mLs per minute lower GFR and whose proteinuria was less than one gram per day, right? That's a very, very, very different group of patients. Compared to stop IG nephropathy, proteinuria was around 1.5 grams a day in stop, right? They had similar age and similar GFR demographics. They didn't report the MESS scores in stop IGA. Now keep in mind, stop IGA started their trial design before MESS was even considered or published. They did do a secondary analysis published years later where they had only pathology data on about 40% of the stop cohort. And that was disproportionately in patients that were had very proximate biopsies to entering the trial. So those biopsies probably overestimate activity and underestimate critici. But if you compare those features, stop IGA had far more scarring and far less activity on their biopsies mm. than, than here, right? So stop IGA had something like almost 91, 92% of patients had S1 lesions. The proportion of patients with E1 or M1 was was less in the stop IG cohort. So it's important to consider yeah, and because I just want to complete the thought that Sean implied but didn't say is that by having more scarring and less activity, it looks like a population that would have less response to steroids, right? Yes, and and again, we don't know that. There is currently no high quality data that actually determines which histologic lesions respond to steroids and which ones don't. However, I think common sense would dictate that you know, interstitial fibrosis and, and scarring is not going to respond to, to corticosteroids. And so it also, I think, is a bigger uh, implication because when we're thinking about SGLT2 inhibitors versus, you know, corticosteroids, we're not probably thinking about them in the same patient. We're thinking them about, about applying them at different stages of the disease in different patient characteristics as opposed to saying, well, I would have treated everybody in uh, testing with an SGLT2 inhibitor. The answer to that is unequivocally no, they are not represented by the DAPA CKD subgroup. So it is important to look at the table one and compare them to both the patients you see in clinic and to the other trials to help interpret the data in the context of the overall literature, especially with every trial having its own limitations. So Sean, you brought this up, the SGLT2 inhibitor DAPA CKD that shows a benefit of SGLT2 inhibition on a subgroup in the DAPA CKD trial, which is a reduction in the rate of progressive CKD, ESRD, and death. Most folks, I think, have taken that data and interpreted it to mean I should be giving every patient who has IgA nephropathy after their ACE or ARB is maximized, putting them in on SGLT2 inhibitor, and then assessing how their proteinuria looks and what the risk of progression is. Are you saying that you would take that in a different way? Absolutely, I would interpret that in a different way. I think that would be an overgeneralization of the DAPA CKD subgroup results. So, I mean, first of all, it was a very small subgroup. They only had 26 outcome events in their analysis. How just, you know, how certain you can be in a small subgroup like that of the randomization process, you get a little more, you know, concerned. But if you look at the outcome in the placebo arm of the DAPA CKD group, it was extremely high at two years. The two-year risk of the primary outcome was around, uh, if I remember correctly, 16%, 18% or so at two years. To give you some context, that is extremely high for an IGA cohort over two years to have a 50% reduction in GFR or ESKD risk at that time point. So especially in the context of proteinuria less than one gram per day. You, you know, So how do you get that kind of risk? The only way you get that risk is if you have... T2 lesions and S1 lesions and scarring. If you go put that information in the prediction tool, you're not getting risks anywhere near that without the presence of sclerosis. And now we don't have pathology data though in that DAPA CKD group. But if you sit back and just think from a common sense point of view, what kind of IgA patients would someone who's an investigator enroll in a trial like DAPA CKD? 
it's probably going to be somebody in whom they're no longer considering immunosuppression, they've had their disease for a long time, and they have likely scarring as a result of previous IG nephropathy. In that group of patients, I think SGLT2 inhibitors are very well indicated, and the DAPA-CKD subgroup analysis, I think, really justifies use of SGLT2 inhibitors in, in that group, much like any other patient with proteinuric CKD. To put the asterisk on what uh, Sean was saying, the placebo group in this trial had about 20% outcome, reaching outcomes at two years. I think it was just before that, actually, it was less than that. And it was a different outcome. Here, we're dealing with a 40% outcome, as well as a compared to a 50%, you know, risk of outcome. So the a 50% threshold would be a lower risk than what was observed here. Mm-hmm. Plus, keep in mind, proteinuria in this group was 2.5 grams, right? A lot higher. So it's really just very, very hard to get that kind of outcome risk in a cohort of IG nephropathy patients with 0.9 grams a day of protein, like in DAPA-CKD, without having scarring. Unfortunately, we're not going to know because I don't think they collected pathology data in DAPA-CKD. So I would personally apply SGLT2 inhibitors in patients in whom you're no longer considering immunosuppression and you would like to augment, if you like, conservative therapy. And I think there will be other options that come out too. People are studying, you know, atrocentan, sparsentan, or other endothelial antagonists. These are really going to increase our options for what what we might consider to be augmented conservative care. Yeah, what I'm saying is, uh, can we think about it very crudely as a non-GN person? Can I say that you should think about the immunosuppressive options in the early phase when there is active damage going on, possibly immunological damage going on. And when it's sort of burnt out disease, then, you know, it's the RAS blockade and the flozins uh, that are more important. I, I agree with that. I would add a caveat of also, if you have no other immunosuppressive options to give, th- then also consider SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, you know, at that, at that time. And, and do you see a downside to starting therapy with a RAS blockade plus an SGLT2 inhibitor? And then potentially layering on a steroid on top of that. I know that's not what the trial is testing. I think there's a downside at the population level and a downside at the individual level. At the individual level, of course, applying a drug that might increase the risk of urinary tract infections in the concurrent presence of steroids might be uh, might be a little bit risky. At the population level, you know, our understanding of risk factors for progression in IG nephropathy are based a lot on proteinuria as a decision point currently, at least in terms of who should get treatment and who shouldn't. And our assessment of proteinuria our thresholds for considering that are based on use of ACE inhibitors, not SGLT2 inhibitors with ACE inhibitors. So if you take a patient that's got fibroid necrosis, crescents, endocapillary hypocellularity, and you artificially lower their proteinuria on an SGLT2 inhibitor, you can't honestly think that you're modifying the underlying pathogenesis of the disease and going to modify the long-term disease course. But you might, you know, you might confuse treatment decisions if you lower proteinuria in that circumstance. So I think there actually is potential harm to be done at the population level until we study it, study it systematically. Well, this is a fight we had during the Twitter discussion, actually. I think Swap and I were going back and forth about this, that Swap was calling me out for saying, if you have someone who is on ACE plus SGLT2 inhibitor with a proteinuria below a gram, I'm still not sure I know what to do with that person. I think they might still benefit from immunosuppression because I might have, like you said, Sean, artificially lowered their proteinuria. All those risk model predictions are based on RAS inhibition and RAS inhibition alone as the background there. Yes. And that's our understanding of current risk stratification. I mean, think about, you can give an SGLT2 inhibitor to someone with proliferative lupus nephritis and lower their proteinuria. doesn't make you happy that you're treating the lupus nephritis though. So I don't see why we would apply similar logic to active IG nephropathy unless we study it in a proper study and we, we start to know the answer. We need to move on this study. So finishing at table one, just that these folks were maximally treated on ACE inhibitors and ARBs with 
80 or more percent on greater than 50% of maximum dose ACE or ARB dosing, which is really better than most of us achieve in clinic, I think. Going forward to the outcomes, um, like we've all alluded to, this turns out to be a positive trial with a lower rate of primary outcome, that 40% EGFR reduction, ESKD, or death due to kidney disease, occurring a lower rate occurring in the methylprednisolone group compared to the placebo group. Uh, and that's a statistically significant difference of somewhere around 7% versus 12% uh, with a p-value of less than 0.01 and a hazard ratio of about 0.5. Important, that percentage you just gave, that's an annualized rate. That's an annualized rate of achieving that primary outcome. So that's that's a pretty big difference. You're talking about almost a 5% difference every year. Yeah, the absolute risk reduction over the course of the trial was something like 14, 15%, right? So it was it's pretty large, unexpectedly large, I would say. This benefit to steroid treatment persists no matter what of those sub outcomes contribute to the primary outcome that you look at. They're all in favor of methylprednisolone, whether that's the 30, 40, or 50% EGFR reduction, the ESKD outcome point, or death due to kidney failure. Uh, sorry, there aren't enough death due to kidney failure to make a statistical judgment, but all of the other things are strongly statistically in favor of steroid treatment. It is remarkable that they reduced the dose of steroids in half and they didn't seem to lose any efficacy. Right. Am I, am I interpreting the results? So, so that's one of the secondary analyses that Sean was talking about comparing the full dose initial prednisone schedule to the reduced dose plus antibiotic prophylaxis schedule, showing that there was not a statistically significant significant difference between those two regimens on efficacy. Although Swapna will be able to tell me what whether that was an inferiority or a non-inferiority comparison, I, I still will never get those right. <laughs> don't, don't, don't mix it up. Yeah, I mean, when you think about what they had to do, is that they found that there, there was they had, you know, if you look at the results, those, those 2017 results, it's like, we have an effective therapy, but it seems to be too toxic. What changes are we going to do to make it less toxic? Okay, we're going to lower the dose, we're going to add this antibiotic. They were successful at making it less toxic, and it didn't affect the efficacy, or it doesn't appear to have, by my eyes, at all. It's a it's an incredible change to the protocol to be able to execute that kind of maneuver. Really impressive. By accident, I guess, because they had no idea yeah. what they were doing. What made you guys pick that dose? It wasn't without any literature. There had been a syst- systematic review done previously of the different steroid trials, and we tried to piece apart some of the data to figure out at what dose do we think the efficacy drops off. But, you know, largely it was... I would say a somewhat well-educated guess, you know, at best. So unfortunately, if the study had been, if the ultimate result had been negative, people would be criticizing and saying, well, it's because you lower the dose, right? So we still don't know about full dose therapy. So at this point, I think it was based on the best data we had at the time. It ended up being, I think, correct. There was a risk it was wrong, but uh, we had to do something to lower the risk of serious adverse events. And, and if you look at the interaction term, the interaction term is obviously going to be underpowered. The study wasn't powered to detect a difference, but the point estimates in the hazard ratios, if anything, move to a more protective effect in the lower dose, which is, of course, not biologically plausible and probably just, you know, random. But the point is, it's not moving in a, in, in a less effective direction. So I think to the best of our current knowledge, I think it provides some security that the lower dose was equally effective as the higher dose. And, and didn't we see the same thing in the PLEX trial where they had the low dose yeah, of the steroids? Yeah, was- I was just going to mention that, that it's amazing that, you know, forever we used one gram per kilogram or even higher doses. And suddenly we are using lower doses and it looks like, hey, the lower doses are just as good. I want to sort of do devil's advocate. Why not biologically plausible or not even devil's advocate, sort of more pro-advocate? Why wouldn't it be bi- 
biologically possible to be more efficacious at a lower dose of steroids. Steroids are freaking toxic. If you're getting sepsis from having a horrible infection on steroids, and that's causing you to have recurrent AKI forever, and that's causing your renal function to decline, then why not see better efficacy with a lower dose of steroids? You could have some competing risks of AKI or other issues, but I think when we get to the serious adverse events, we'll realize the numerically those were not still all that common, right? They were more common, but they were still rare, rare events. I think that I wouldn't claim that low dose is more effective than high dose, I would say that it, it is probably of equal e efficacy. I think all of this is coming out of figure three, which is doing this subgroup analysis, comparing those point estimates uh, of full dose versus reduced dose, and then the other pre-specified subgroup analyses that Swap had talked about. Basically looking at all these point estimates and, and the bar of what the 95% confidence interval is here all of those favor methylprednisolone and all of them seem to overlap. They all seem like a pretty consistent treatment effect in each of those subgroups. Josh, can I add, can I add two comments yep. about that for a spot? Because I think there's two important ancillary kind of little topics to discuss. One is the issue of E1, right? So if you look at the original 2009 publication of the MESS score, there was always this implication that maybe E1 was only predictive of outcome in people that were not treated with steroids and maybe therefore E1, you know, is a steroid responsive element. Interestingly here, there is really no difference in outcome between people that have E0 versus E1. Now this isn't accounting for all the other factors that may be correlated with E1 and E0. It's just looking at it on its own. But that alone is kind of an interesting result suggesting we shouldn't withhold therapy from people that have E0 lesion. And, so th and this was specifically why you guys... Yes, this is exactly exactly why there was a strategy. We wanted to variable. answer this question right from the beginning is this was a question you guys had. Let's take a look at E1 versus E0. And that, that topic has come up routinely throughout the nephropathy literature and commentaries about E1 maybe being a lesion that might respond better to corticosteroids. And it, within the limits of this data, there does not seem to be a signal. No signal. No right. signal. Okay. The, the second issue that's important comes back to the Chinese ethnicity, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of controversy around, well, you have the um, previous study from China by Zhizhang Liv that showed efficacy of corticosteroids, and therefore maybe steroids are only effective in patients that come from China. And so there was always this concern about having to look at uh, ethnicity in that regard. And that's why that variable was included in the forest plot. Uh, and again, if anything, there seems to be a better effect in the non-Chinese patients. That was a p-value of marginal significance, 0.048, but the hazard ratio was a little bit lower in the, the non-Chinese population. I think this is also important when interpreting the STOP-IGA trial, which was almost entirely an ethnically Northern European population. So because there's because since stop IGA there was the question well maybe it was because it was done in a northern European population and you know IG nephropathy might be different in terms of its response to to immunosuppression so again this raises the issue that maybe we shouldn't be considering ethnicity at all when we're determining whether we should treat patients with IG nephropathy with corticosteroids or not we should be looking more at the the course right they are active they are early on in the course they give exactly. them steroids regardless of their of their ethnicity give them steroids. If they are far down, yeah. whether they are Chinese or, or not, steroids are probably not going to be helpful. And, and I, I just want to say, I don't mean to imply that one-way comparisons provided in a forest plot should determine who we should or shouldn't treat with corticosteroids. I just mean to provide the background information on yeah. why these variables were put in this uh, particular plot and, and what kind of interesting insights they provide to our current understanding of treatment. Are we going to see future publications from this group looking at some of the other components of the MESS score and if and 
you know, so one of the things you mentioned earlier is maybe people that have sclerosis and scarring are going to be less uh, responsive to steroids. Are we, should we expect those publications to be forthcoming? Hopefully, yes. <laughs> I take it you're not on the writing committee. <laughs> uh, I, no, I, in, in all seriousness, we are we are looking at doing that. I actually have an application in with China right now in order to get approval for to use the data in that regard. But there's been a lot of barriers in the context of COVID and regulatory uh, requirements that have become far more stringent in China. So I, there may be some delay, but we are we are looking to do that. One other question that I have, I'm still stuck in this force plot on Figure Three, looking at the randomized glucocorticoid dose, full dose versus reduced dose, and I can't keep my eyes off this huge confidence interval in the reduced dose. And usually, when I see those wide confidence interval, I associate that with a smaller n, right? It's like you know, if you look at the um, the age, there's a lot fewer people that were over 50, so I understand why that is a wide confidence interval. But the reduced dose is about the same size as the full dose. Yeah, I think it's probably I think it's probably event driven, right? Like it's really the number of events. And so if you look at the Kaplan Meyer curves, they don't have the Much same follow up. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. Thank you, thank you. That does make a lot more sense. Appreciate that. Okay. Yeah. And the fewer events are because the follow up. Fewer was, time. Yeah, half the yeah. time. Yeah, much yeah. harder. Okay. SAEs, Great. And then and, and last thing was the adverse event table, which is E table four. E really table four doesn't make the publication because you know who cares about adverse events? Drives me bananas. Because, because I don't Joel, yeah. Joel, you go ahead and try and write a paper for JAMA. <laughs> no, no, I, no, exactly. And that's right. This is totally on the editors of JAMA. This is not on you guys. It is. At, I am just frustrated to death with these editors. I think Joel raises a good point here because the original the original study was stopped for adverse events. So I think adverse events are a very reasonable real figure that you should have got an extra page for here in Jam. So I, I'm with Joel that this should have made main text. And I'm sure that was where you guys were in editorial discussions too. But getting into JAMA and getting out was more important. That's totally fair. So in E-Table 4, we can see that there are more adverse events in the methylprednisolone group than the placebo group, which is because that methylprednisolone group includes both the full-dose and the low-dose regimens of steroids. As we discussed before, and as is better detailed in the earlier publication, those are driven by severe infections in the methylprednisolone group. But in looking at the risk of serious adverse events, full dose versus placebo, and then reduced ver dose versus placebo, you can see a huge reduction in the number of adverse events. In the initial phase of the trial, it was 30 versus 5 full dose versus placebo events that were serious. And in the second phase, reduced dose versus placebo of the trial, we're looking at 7 versus 3, which is almost like a couple people from one group swaying to the other group, fragility index problem of not sure this is real. The last thing actually I want to talk about for one sec, if we can talk about another e-figure, was looking at e-figure three, which looks at the rates of proteinuria change and EGFR change over time. And this shows a really rapid effect on proteinuria in the steroid-treated group and an increase in GFR in the steroid-treated group compared to the placebo group which is really like the opposite of all of the RAS literature, SGLT2 inhibitor, he hemodynamic effect on GFR leading to prevention of CKD progression. Well, that's because you're, that's because you're actually treating, you're the, treating disease, the disease. Right. right. Yeah. That's, that's exactly it. So I think like you're talking about a very different mechanism of treating disease. You're treating the inflammation that is causing this disease. It's not just increasing GFR leading to more blood flow and more proteinuria. You're actually treating the inflammation improving GFR and reducing proteinuria like you would hope for a disease-modifying therapy. I mean, the proteinuria is not a clean win, right? Because by the end of the trial, by the end of three years, there was no difference in the proteinuria. 
right? You get this immediate drop in proteinuria, and then it peters out. I mean, dead, dead men tell no tales, right? Well, also, what makes you think you need sustained reduction in proteinuria in order to change the long-term outcome? So let me let, let me raise this as a particular topic, which is that we did a analysis of our international nephropathy cohorts looking at the duration of proteinuria remission correlation with reduction in risk. And certainly, the longer you're in remission, the better your long-term outcome up to a point. And what is the plateau? It's around three or four years, right? So there seems to be a some degree of legacy benefit associated with a short-term reduction in proteinuria with long-term outcomes. And, and also keep in mind that the surrogate outcome analysis on proteinuria really looked at short-term changes in proteinuria at nine months. However, I think this raises an important point that if you see proteinuria going up in a patient in front of you in clinical practice, don't necessarily assume that that person has now increasing activity of their IG nephropathy and you should treat them again with corticosteroids. That would not, but well, that wouldn't be a result from this trial and it wouldn't necessarily hold true because proteinuria can increase for several reasons, right? Maybe that person is becoming more like the DAPA CKD group where they're having evolving sclerosis and that proteinuria is due to scarring. Or maybe very much indeed the disease activity does wax and wane over time. And it turns out that we may need different therapies and steroids with less toxicity that we could treat repeatedly over time in the event of increasing disease activity. But without knowing that, we wouldn't know how to interpret it. But it does seem like the risk of the outcome does maintain a separation at that long-term follow-up, despite the fact that proteinuria starts to approach each other. Okay. That, that's pretty that's pretty convincing. You know, I I, I was a little bit skeptic coming in and, and Sean has managed to make me switch swipes. <laughs> I was I was just looking up. I was The I, Grinch's I was heart grew three sizes that day. This is huge. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, we use statin C. We're not gonna be affected by increased muscle mass from uh, the increased heart size we <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to see the GFR curves maintain separation despite the fact that the proteinuria is coming back up, but it does add some complexity to clinical management, right? When you see proteinuria rebounding back up, maybe that's when you need to consider repeat biopsies or what we really need is a surrogate biomarker that can help us figure out whether someone has scarring or activity, right? That's not invasive. Yeah, it's the membranous story. And I mean, that's it, it's through and through. There's this constant ongoing debate of is proteinuria in itself toxic to the kidneys or is it just your marker of the badness that already happened? Exactly. Right. In my patients with membranous that have the current, it's like a switch. They're either proteinuric or they're not proteinuric, yeah. right? They're on or off. IgA does feel like it just grinds the kidney down over decades and you have these patients that are really late and they've got a lot of proteinuria and yeah and i think with the newer studies looking at phase two and phase three data hopefully we will have in the future a situation where we have more tolerable therapies that could be given repeatedly over time if needed with less toxicity to control the disease activity because certainly you know animal models of ig nephropathy would suggest that uh, disease activity can wax and wane uh, quite dramatically over time. And again, it probably comes back to environmental triggers of disease, right? So we know that galactose deficient IG1 levels increase in the context of infections associated with aerodigestive tract, which may then precipitate disease flares. You know, th there's a lot of environmental uh, interrelationship with disease activity that may explain why proteinuria may go up, you know, in the future related to changes in disease activity. And in the Department of Future Publications, do you guys have um, galactose deficient IgA levels uh, in a freezer at negative 40 degrees somewhere that are going to be published sometime? Because I don't think, that, I, don't, I don't remember seeing that in this study. No, not in this study. I mean, keep in mind that those levels are very hard to measure. Until recently, there's been not necessarily as clear standardized assay for that, that particular antibody. It's not as clearly correlated with outcome as we would like. And all the biosamples are held locally in different regions. So the Canadian samples are held oh. in Canada. The Chinese samples are held in China. So maybe may a little complicated. Helped with to, IRB, but it could be difficult with future publications. Got it. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, is there a situation where you would give steroids a second time in IgE nephropathy? You know, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth on this answer. Like, I, I don't like steroids for treating glomerular disease. I think they're associated with a lot of toxicity. I'm really happy that we now have a lower dose a steroid regimen that uh, has less toxicity. I, I have been using the low-dose protocol steroids in patients with IgE nephropathy that I think are both at high risk of progression and who I think may respond to corticosteroids because at this point we don't have another treatment option in IgE nephropathy. But I try to avoid repeated treatments over time. And I certainly wouldn't do that without repeating a biopsy first to confirm that they actually have active disease. Because if you've treated somebody with proteinuria and it goes down and then years later it goes back up, I think it's fair to say you have no idea what is going on in the tissue you know, at that time. And I know a lot of people would not agree with me. A lot of people would say, well, you never need to rebiopsy a patient with IgE nephropathy. Although I, I just really don't think that's true because if you rebiopsy them and they have mostly scarring, I mean, that's when I would introduce an SGLT2 inhibitor, you know, at that point, right? So there's a huge difference in treatment approaches based on those repeat biopsy findings. Now, I, I wouldn't say I've never retreated somebody with corticosteroids. It depends on how well they tolerated it the first time. And maybe with lower dose protocols, people might be more willing to do that. But I would really love to see us moving towards other additional therapeutic options that actually target the pathogenesis of the disease that we could use in those circumstances where you have relapsing and active disease. So Sean, I know you'd mentioned that there are not other therapies available for IgA nephropathy. And I don't know if this is a Canada-US difference. We actually have oral budesonide available in the US approved by the FDA based on trial data that I think none of us have seen because the phase three trial is not yet published. Not yet published. Um, Excuse me. And I, as a doctor, am not really excited about prescribing medicines for whose trial data I have not seen. But that doesn't mean I haven't been reached out to by people who represent the company that are trying to sell this drug. And I still don't talk to them because I don't talk to drug reps, but they're trying to send a message that this is a medicine that's available for the treatment of IgA nephropathy. So let's provide some context to the listeners. So what you have available is enteric targeted release budesonide in the United States. We have oral budesonide available in Canada as well, but it's not it's not contained within the proprietary spheres and then capsules that actually target its release the way the originator product is in, in the United States. So the data on which the FDA approved that particular medication of targeted uh, enteric targeted release budesonide is based on short-term proteinuria reduction, which of course uh, itself is based on the Kidney Health Initiative analysis of proteinuria reduction as a surrogate endpoint. So it's actually a very good thing for patients with IgE nephropathy that the FDA was even willing to consider proteinuria reduction for uh, expedited uh, review and approval of that of that medication. However, there is a requirement to correlate that with long-term GFR-based outcomes for which the phase three trial is still ongoing. We still have patients here in BC that have been in the trial that are now in the, are still in the follow-up phase of that. So they're they going to have to show a correlation with the GFR-based outcome, which will likely be slow, to take that expedited review and approval process and turn it into a more formal long-term uh, approval. I think there's no doubt, though, that the side effect profile is less with that medication because of the first pass metabolism in the liver. Yeah. However, you do have the publication of the Nefigan trial, which is the phase two study that's been published uh, that showed not only a reduction in proteinuria, but also a slowing of the GFR progression. And the interim analysis of the Nefigard trial, which is the phase two study, has been presented by Jonathan Baird at the World Congress of Nephrology. So it is in the public domain, it just has not been uh, published because again, the phase three trial is ongoing. 
uh, requiring a GFR-based cor- uh, correlation with a short-term surrogate outcome of proteinuria. So are there patients who you would reach for the enteric-coated budesonide before you would reach for a low-dose prednisone regimen? It feels like I feel much more comfortable with the prednisone data, especially now that we've talked about it. I still don't feel comfortable with this other medicine. I don't think that's a question I'm going to have to answer in Canada because unfortunately the medication costs <laughs> too much. And I know they're moving towards a submission for approval in Health Canada, but health, but in Canada, the environment's different. Health Canada can approve a medication, but then it has to be assessed for funding at the provincial level. And the, and the medication is just exceptionally expensive. I, I don't know what the actual cost in Canada will be, but no one thinks it's going to be cheap. I think in the United States, the costs are in excess of $100,000 for nine months worth of therapy. So when you compare that to low-dose methylprednisolone, I, I think it's going to be a hard sell from a uh, from a cost-effectiveness point of view. I, although I think the toxicity to a patient is going to be much less from enteric-targeted release budesonide. And the, at least the outcomes I've seen from the, the published phase two study and the World Congress abstract study are quite convincing. So if they can correlate it with long-term GFR, Hopefully, we will have a therapeutic option that does have less toxicity in patients with IG nephropathy. Our our health system is also publicly funded out of our individual pockets. (laughs) Fair enough. The money comes from somewhere and it comes from the public. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And again, I I am so, maybe unreasonably, but I am angry about the fact that this drug has been approved and it has full-fledged marketing and I'm getting people knocking on my door to talk about this drug and they don't have any publication. And I always just, my, my story to them when they ever ring them, my doorbell is, is it published yet? And they say, no, I said, no, thank but well, I, I, I think really, you should be trying to be slightly less angry about that because, because no, the, re- the, the, the reason, you know, the reason the FDA has approved proteinuria as a surrogate outcome is because of the lack of clinical trials in IG nephropathy. So the only reason, absolutely literally the only reason we have any pharmaceutical interest in developing new drugs is because of the potential for a surrogate outcome. If it wasn't for that, we'd be left treating everybody with methylprednisolone for the rest of, you know, the, the course of IG nephropathy. So I think we should encourage the assessment of surrogacy, although I agree with you, we do need to evaluate the data in a peer-reviewed uh, fashion that allows for robust results. I guess at this point, you know, American physicians and American patients are left trusting the FDA's interpretation of the data, and I leave it to you to decide, you know, how to interpret that. I don't see any insurance company accepting a prior authorization until we have that peer-reviewed RCT anyway. So, it's, I mean, rare, rare person who has $100,000 of pocket change to spare. So, so does that mean it's, it's, not, it's not being covered by insurance companies right now in the United States? Because I don't know. I don't, I don't work there. Let's, can, we just table, can we just table this since nobody knows? None of us are using the drug. Let's <laughs> no, just move know. on. Honestly. Yeah, but, but the, honestly, the, the point Josh is, is the point, it's a, yeah, yeah, but Sean's point about, you know, like we can't blame, you know, like we, we did not have many industry involvement in nephrology a few years ago, right? Now with, of course, Flozins and Finerinone and all those other things, industry is now back, right? They are in, interested in doing trials in nephrology. So we cannot be, I mean, I'm not saying we should lower our standards, uh, but but the proteinuria reduction has been accepted for a reason, you know, to make therapies available to patients at the same time. Uh, now here, to, yeah. I grant you all that. Here's the deal. I believe that it's not published in a peer-reviewed journal right now because they want to frame the story. They This is a marketing decision that they want to be able to shape the story before it gets published. And that's what they're doing right now. And I find it disgusting, dis- disingenuous. And I am, prof- I'm so, it, it does make me angry. It does make me angry. I, I, I find it hard to tell a patient, I know what this medicine is going to do it to do to you, either good or bad without that data. 
And I think that's the hard part for me as a prescriber, a potential prescriber of a medicine like this. I think that's why I want to see the data like Joel does too. I mean, the, the, hopefully that by virtue of accepting slope of GFR as the as a confirmatory endpoint, this should hopefully shorten the time frame between uh, looking at a surrogate marker like proteinuria and looking at a kidney outcome-based marker like slope so that we can hopefully move through this ambiguous period to a more uh, a harder outcome like slope and then get the publication out there so that everyone can determine the true efficacy of a medication. And this, this problem is going to come up repeatedly not just with the targeted release budesonide, but with every other new therapy coming up at IGNephropathy. Are we done with this? <laughs> we, yeah. we put this study to bed. Is there any other last minute things that we, anybody wants to talk about or bring up? Okay, let's move on to tubular secretions. It's been a moment. I've forgotten what it was called. Swap, do you, what is your tubular secretion? So I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but uh, you know, Ottawa is solidly in the uh, sixth wave, or, or as we call it, we are in the third Omicron wave of, of COVID uh, with BA5. Uh, we have like 80 patients in the hospital. I'm writing at least two or three prescriptions for Paxlovid and dialysis patients every day and, and the same thing in transplant. So yes, uh, you know, Paxlovid, do use it in dialysis. We have a CJSN paper, uh, which shows how to do that. Excellent. Jordi, you, uh, you have a tubular secretion for us? Uh, mine is much less important than Swapnel's. I, I do want to throw in a plug that that uh, paper was fantastic and that you guys have definitely changed practice and how we're thinking right. about managing these patients. And so then on a far less serious note, I came off of maternity leave a couple weeks ago. And as what everyone else has said, it's definitely not vacation. But we did on the rare occasion get to watch like an hour of television, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And so I do have to put a plug in for Star Trek Strange New Worlds for any extremely geeky people out there like me. Um, I love golden age sci-fi, which is things like Asimov and a lot of these older 1940s style type of sci-fi. But the downside of it is that it often treats women like they don't have brains. So this is this very cool, more modern uh, take on golden age feeling of sci-fi. So it's meant to sort of be in the style of the original series. The women have brains. It's very cool. So I strongly encourage people to watch it. It's very, very well done. Okay, let's let, let's let, let's rank it. Right? Rank it better than or worse than uh, Deep Space Nine. Oh, so my order is TNG, Deep Space Nine, then Strange New World than original series. And Enterprise? Enterprise is after. I'm not a big Enterprise fan. And, and Picard or Discovery? I, Picard's freaking the best. <laughs> Picard. <laughs> Excellent. Well done. Well done. Very good. Josh, you got something for us? I'm um, sure. So about three weeks ago, I got back from the ASN Trex course at Mount Desert Island, uh, which is a Ooh. kidney physiology course designed for uh, medical students and graduate students uh, at the Mount Desert Island Biological Lab just outside of Bar Harbor in Maine. Uh, it was fantastic. It was definitely not a vacation, although not as not a vacation as maternity leave is. That is way harder. <laughs> I was working tons of science every day with really talented, really motivated, really smart medical and PhD students who taught me about nephrology, which I love. And I came back feeling really energized about the young people who are going into our field, which is something I feel like we don't say enough. There are lots of smart, wonderful people who want to do this thing we do and encouraging them and getting to work with them was so fun. So just encouraging folks to look at these courses. Uh, we run one for nephrology fellows later in the summer. I think the deadline for that's already passed. We run the kidney TREX program through ASN early in the summer for medical students and PhD students. And then there are courses for hospitalists as well, if folks are interested in getting 
hands-on experiments of physiology, like understanding how the proximal tubule works, how stones form, how the bladder works, and how water regulation works. Doing these experiments on classic model systems and on yourself, and also just really beautiful hiking and time in Acadia. It was not a vacation, but like really got me excited about nephrology again. That's outstanding. Sean, do you have a tubular secretion? Uh, I don't have anything quite as exciting as hiking or a series of Star Trek episodes that I don't actually personally know anything about. But what, what, what I can say is that in terms of the prediction tool that I was talking about before, we do have a recent publication out that actually updates the tool for use after biopsy. This uh, you may find useful if you're trying to figure out how to apply the results of the testing trial. You can reevaluate risk and then uh, try to make risk-based decisions instead of just based on pronary alone, which is probably not really enough. Outstanding. Very good. What's that publication in? It's in KI. I think it came out maybe a few months ago, but it just allows you to reevaluate patients' risks dynamically over time and reassess risk. Outstanding. Outstanding. So in uh, 2018, I had the opportunity to go to Mount Everest Base Camp, which is uh, it's like a six-day trek from uh, Kathmandu. It, well, we flew in for a little bit and then we we tracked uh, about 50 miles. It's a pretty amazing trek. And the crew that did it, we just had a reunion and we did it outside of Roanoke, Virginia. And there's a thing called the Triple Crown. And these are supposed to be some of the best views on the Appalachian Trail. And so we did them as day hikes, as three consecutive day hikes as an eight miler to a place called called uh, McAfee Knob, and then another eight miler to a place called Tinker Cliff, and then about a five miler to something called Dragon's Tooth. And they, each of them are phenomenal little day hikes and you do them on consecutive days. It's pretty cool. So if you're looking for a hike, you can do it, you can do it all backcountry or you can do it as day hikes, which is what we did with my crew from Everest and that was great. Though I argue the presidential traverse in New Hampshire is way cooler. Well, I will tell you that the presidential traverse is probably harder too. But uh, New Hampshire mountains are rough. I've got a fair amount of that. But uh, this was great. Highly recommend Triple Crown in Virginia. Okay, guys, thank you very much. This has been an awesome episode. It's been a bit since we've recorded, so I'm glad that we're back. 